We began looking at 2 Timothy last week, and we are looking at, looking at it through the lens of what Paul writes there in verse 1, sort of a, a paraphrase of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.1 is that he has been sent. Paul is saying, I've been sent to tell other people, I've been sent to tell everyone about the life that the Lord has promised. I get to tell you about life the life that you can have now and the life you can have in eternity, I'm here to tell you about the life that's been promised to you because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That sounds like a pretty great task. to Tell people about the life they can have, tell people about the life they can enjoy now and forever because of what Jesus has done and is doing. And that's what he's doing here. Jesus came so that we could have, this is what Jesus said of himself in John 10.10, I came so they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to share with us what true living really is now and forever. The Lord calls on us or calls us to what we might call a, a rich and full and joyful life. The Lord calls us to a life that's overflowing with meaningful activities. The abundant life. Not saying that you'll just do Thing after thing after thing that gets your name put in the newspaper. That's not what we're saying. But you'll be involved in moment after moment, act after act that has deep, significant, eternal meaning because you're doing it because of who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling you to. Thanks to Jesus, you and I can live this meaningful, abundant life. And so Paul says, I've been sent to tell you about that. I've been sent to tell you about that life. Now we know we're not foolish. We're not naive. We know that we're going to face difficulties. We know there's going to be, I mean, we just got through praying about someone who's going to have a, a very significant surgery. And we know there's others who've had them this last week. And we know there's others who are going through their own personal nightmare that's not being broadcast, but what they're feeling is heavy. We know there's going to be difficulties. The Lord knew that there would be thorns in this life. As it says in Matthew 13, verse 22, there's going to be those cares of the world. And there's going to be all those deceitful things that come from materialism and riches. There's going to be all those things that try and choke the word. What that means is it's going to try and hinder and weaken our faith. People are going to hurt us. Our bodies are going to fail and we're going to get tired. For a thousand different reasons, we're going to be tempted to give up or give in. And so what we're going to read about today in 2 Timothy 1 is a call to march on faithfully. Timothy is going to be reminded in verse 6 to fan the flame. Fan the flame of the gift of God that's within you. Timothy's going to be reminded he's got to do this. Now, what's he referring to? Now, it was read for you. Alan read it just a moment ago for you. But Paul says that I've, I've laid my hands on you. So, so fan the flame of the gift of God that's within you when I laid my hands on you. Now, we know in other places, like in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, there it's recorded specifically in Acts 19, 6, that Paul laid his hands on other people and they received special gifts from the Spirit, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy. Special things taking place. So it may well be that 
that Paul is referring to that, that there was a situation, a time where, where because of the, the plan of God that, that Paul placed his hands upon Timothy and, and some special gift, speaking in tongues or able to prophesy, something was imparted to Timothy, maybe. It could just be, you know, he's, he says my hand, so it's probably what it is, but he makes reference also in uh, the previous book, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, there's a time where we see the, the elders place their hands upon Timothy. Now, most likely all that means is that he's being commissioned to go do a job, right? There was a time where the, the elders in certain congregations, certain locations would, would pray for someone, place their hands on them, and they're saying, off you go. You're going with our blessing, the blessing of the Lord. Go preach the gospel. Go change hearts and lives somewhere. Go. So clearly Timothy's been commissioned to do some kind of work, go to different places. But here's the thing. No matter what, whether it's that he's been imparted a spiritual gift or he's been given a special commission, we know that whatever it is, he's in control. Because even the, the spiritual gifts, right? 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, it wasn't too terribly long ago we studied 1 Corinthians together. If you turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14, you remember there in those verses 27 through 33 that you speak in tongues, that's under your control. You can stop speaking in tongues. You're prophesying, that's under your control. You can stop prophesying and let someone else. So no matter what it is, it's in his control. It's in Timothy's control. And it may well be the case that either right now or Paul seeing that something in the future means some trouble that's coming in the future, Timothy's going to be tempted to sit this one out. He's going to be tempted to just relax. And Paul says, you can't do that. I'm telling you to right now, get stirred up, get motivated, get ready to work. Fan the flame. It's, it's burning out. You've, you've sat around campfires. You've seen it. You know it. What you've got to do whenever the fire that once was big and tall and bright and was burning everything in sight starts to smolder. And you have just a few orange embers down there. You've got to do something to stir it up and get them going again. Add fuel to the fire to get it roaring once again. And he tells him to do just that. Get the fan or fan the flame again. So I'm, I want to know, I want to think through and ask this question, what does it mean what does it mean that Timothy needs to fan this flame of the gift of God? Let's, let's read. I know that Alan did a perfect, outstanding job of, of reading, but I want to read starting at verse 5 and go all the way through verse, verse 14. I want us to spend a minute reading together. We can't read enough. Paul exhorted Timothy to give extra attention to the public declaration and reading of Scripture, and you and I are going to do the same. So listen deeply, listen carefully with me. And as we read this line in verse 6, where he tells him to fan the flame, and we keep reading, I want you to be asking yourself in preparation as we read together, be thinking, what is all this information after verse 6 telling me about how he's to fan this flame? Okay? Here we go. Let's actually start at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your mother, or your, excuse me, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God, now listen to this, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Your, your translation might say of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now we'll talk about that in just a moment, maybe some of you have, which I've entrusted to him, and we'll, we'll deal with that. I recognize it's there. 13, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, and by extension, every last one of us, need to be reminded of who God is and what he expects from us. And so he says there in verse 6, fan the flame. And he says in verse 7, because you've got to remember, our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control, a sound mind. And so I think that those are the three things that he's really keying on, that when he says, here's the way in which you're going to be able to fan the flame, here's how you're going to make that 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 fire bigger and bigger and more powerful. Here's how you're going to make that fire more useful. You remember these three things, that God is powerful and he's blessed us with power as well. That there's special kind of love that only comes from knowing the Father and that he expects us to be those of self-control, sound minds. So look through those three things together. He says, I'm not giving you a spirit of fear. I'm expecting you, Timothy, and in turn, Tommy, Alan, every last one of us. I'm expecting you to be bold. I'm expecting you to be courageous, not, not timid, not bashful, not shy, not silent, certainly not ashamed. Boy, he hammers the idea of being ashamed here in this passage. Be bold. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. Because think about it, one of the things that in the greater culture at large, whenever we see we're talking about going through you know, culture wars and being such you know, headbutting of different kinds of things going on, one of the characteristics of the sexual revolution is boldness. Standing out and saying, I'm going to redefine God's plan for marriage. I'm going to redefine God's design for the home, and I'm going to do it loudly, and I'm going to demand that all others celebrate this choice. And that kind of loudness, you know what it often does? That kind of loudness often silences so many others because it becomes scary to say anything against that loudness. And so there's a measure of quietness and timidity and even shame that comes with being faced with the loudness. Cultural pressure and peer pressure these are not new or unique to our time. Paul and Timothy were going through the same types of things. They might have had different labels stuck on it, but they were still dealing with cultural pressure and peer pressure. Absolutely they were. If you think they weren't, you're, you're naive. And so he says, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. You know what that means? Some people were. Some people had spoken the testimony of who Jesus Christ was and then had been shamed into silence. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't stop being my friend. Don't stop sticking up for me just because I've been thrown into jail. But instead, be bold and choose to suffer with me. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I believe and convinced that he's able to guard until that day. And then verse 16, we didn't read this one earlier. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. This man, Onesiphorus, kept seeking me out, kept finding me, kept being my friend, kept encouraging me, even when others had left me for dead. So don't be quiet. Don't let error and lies stand as if they're the truth. Do you hear me? He's saying, don't be quiet. Don't let a lie stand and have the spotlight on it and neon lights around it. Don't let a lie stand as if it's the truth. Don't be pushed to be doing and avoiding saying things. Don't, don't be the kind of person who can be pushed into doing and saying what you know is wrong just so that you won't upset others around you. Now, see, there's a difference here. I didn't say don't be someone who's obstinate and hard to get along with. I would never, the Lord says, be kind and gracious. But don't allow pressure to push you into a place where you know that something's right to where you start saying something else just because you don't want to upset the peers and the culture around you. He says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. This might be difficult at times, but the Lord doesn't shy away from telling us what's at stake. So don't, don't be quiet and don't be pushed into doing something that's false or wrong or it's a lie. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8, 38. Will you listen to this, Mark 8, 38? Because I want to I impress upon your heart how serious this is. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. Now, do you hear that? If you're ashamed of me and my words, in other words, if you're ashamed of what Jesus has taught, if you're ashamed of the doctrine taught by Jesus, if you refuse to stand up for, speak, and live what's been taught by Jesus, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Be ashamed of him, be silent when it comes to speaking for him. And in essence, he will be forced to say and stay silent, as it were, when we come before him. I don't know this one. He was silent before the world. I'm silent before him now. He was ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of him. That's as serious as it gets. I can't think of anything that would impress more gravity upon my heart than that. It's, it's kind of like, I hope that if you ever found yourself in a situation where the peers and the people around you were, were pushing you into a place of silence or, or pushing you into a place of uh, acting in a way that you didn't used to act or pushing you into a way of saying things you didn't used to say and you find yourself going through a time of silence, I hope you'll finally gather the, the courage. The, fan will, the flame will be fanned to where you will identify with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, 
is one of those famous passages from the great prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had, and I won't, I won't quote it, I'll just share with you the, the heart of it here. Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. Every time I brought up the name of the Lord, it got me hurt. Every time I brought up the name of the Lord, it would be throwing me in a prison, casting me out. Something terrible was happening to me every time I brought up the name of the Lord. So I just said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to mention his name anymore. And so I stayed silent for a time. But just like Paul told Timothy, fan the flame inside you. In Jeremiah 20, he said, when I tried to stay silent, it was like fire in my bones. And it was consuming from the inside out. So I had to finally let it out. I had to finally again say, yes, the Lord is true. The Lord is the one. And he's telling us how to live and how to be. So fan the flame. Don't let it get cold. Because we have to remember, here's some of the things to remember about God's power. Look at verse 10, 2 Timothy 1.10. God has the power to conquer death. 1.10. He's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The power to conquer death, the power to make dead things alive, that kind of power is stunning. It's incredible. The power that can just speak nothing into everything, speak the world into existence, or tell the dead to come out of the tomb. Or the kind of power that can take people like you and me, dead in our sins, and give us life. Lost and make us found. That's the kind of power that ought to humble us and, and put us on our knees and make us uh, thankful and prayerful and worshipful. He says, don't forget about God's power over death. Because here's, here's the next thing. Paul will write in other places, Romans 8, 11, That's the same power that resides in us. He says here in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Remember what he wrote in Romans 8, 11? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. You and I should be convicted and courageous and bold because God is powerful and he's seeking for us to do things for him, with him. Now he says in verse 12, He's able to guard, look at this, he's able to guard. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I, whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me or as I said, you may have what I've entrusted to him. Here's what the Greek said. Here's what the Greek says. I trust the one to do what is right with my deposit. I trust him to do right with my deposit. So scholars now look at that and mean, okay, your deposit. Does that mean the deposit you gave him or the deposit he gave you? And so there's a fight. There's like an exegetical fight. What's that mean, my deposit? Well, you know what? Here's the deal. Either way, you know what it means? God is powerful. Either way. Because if it's this, if it's he's able to guard the life, like Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit before he passed away on the cross. So if that's what Paul means, that he's saying, I've given God my life. I trust him to, to do with it the right thing. Amen, he will. 
But here in this passage, over and over and over again, it seems to mean different. Look at 1 Timothy 6.20. 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard the deposit. There it is, that same word. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. What's the deposit entrusted to you, Timothy? The truth of the gospel. Go over to 2 Timothy 1.14. 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted in you. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share that deposit with them. So in those three passages, all the time that the word deposit is used, it seems to be the case of using the truth of the gospel. So it makes sense to me to think this one means the same thing. But like I said, either way, it doesn't matter. It teaches the exact same doctrine. I trust God to see his plan through. I trust God to protect me. I trust God to make sure his word doesn't return void. I trust God. And that's why he says he's not ashamed. In verse 12, I'm not ashamed because I know the one that I believe. And, and I'm convinced that he is able to bring his plan to fruition. The gates of hell couldn't keep Jesus from establishing the church. Nothing's going to keep Jesus from returning in judgment day. Nothing's going to keep him from preserving me, keeping me, and keeping all these things together just the way he wants. I trust him. Now, so much could be emphasized. Let me, let me jump ahead. Because he says, not only are you to trust the power of, of what God is able to accomplish, what he's able to do, but you're also to trust the very word of God. As we're saying, this has been entrusted to Timothy, entrusted to us. I just, I just want to ask this question. I'm going to kind of stop and just say, do you believe God's word? Now, that may sound like an oversimplified question since we've gathered here on a Sunday morning to study and worship. But you know what the case is? You know what the fact is? Too many people that are assembled here and assembled in, in uh, the Lord's church around the world today make claims to belief, but when it comes to life, don't believe it at all. They're afraid. They're afraid the next moment might be something that causes them to be eternally damned. They're afraid the next moment might be that which proves that they've never done enough and on and on and on because they don't believe the promises of Scripture. But look, Paul says part of the reason I'm not ashamed Going back to like Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because I know how powerful it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3 and listen to this. Verse 16, you know these lines, but I want you to read them this time as if you're being tested. Do I actually believe this? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It matters. It makes a difference. It's what's to be taught. It's what reproves people. It's what corrects error. It's what trains people and makes them righteous. Verse 17, he says, so that the man of God can be complete. Do you believe that it's Scripture that makes you complete? Or do you believe you need Scripture plus something? Do you need Jesus plus something in order to finally be complete? He says it's the Word of God that makes us complete and equipped for every good work. 
sometime, we won't take the time to do it right now, but maybe jot down in your notes if you do something right there. Write Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. I want you on your own time to go back and read those lines from Psalm 19, 7 through 11 and ask yourself, do I believe in the Word of God the way the psalmist did? Because the psalmist is going to say, God, your Word's so incredible, it lifts me up. Your Word's so incredible, it's what makes me finally wise. Your Word's so great, it's what actually changes my life. And if you believe that this message is from God, if you believe this message is true, it can change lives. It can change destinies. And so why would we be quiet about that? Why would we be timid about that? This is a bold call for action. Now, super briefly, we're going to highlight how this bold call for action, for acknowledging the power of God and the power he's called us to live with, this bold, direct, forthright call for action is tempered. Because you're to live out this bold calling with love and a sound mind or of self-control. There has to be, as Peter would write in 1 Peter 3.15, you defend the faith, but you do so with gentleness and respect or you know, with meekness. First thing he says to temper that power that we're living with, the boldness that we're to be displaying is love, of course. God's given us not a spirit of, of fear, but of power and of love. We should be desiring what's best for others. We covered this in detail in the description of 1 Corinthians 13 a few weeks back. I might note for you, you should go and read 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, especially verse 18, 1 John 4, 18, where the emphasis is placed upon if we love other people, if we love the Lord, there's going to be a way that, that we act and treat others. We tell others the truth. Listen to this. We tell others the truth about Jesus because we love them. But we tell others the truth with kindness and patience also because we love them. So there's that, there's that very clear balance. Living in the power of God, changing what he has shared, but sharing it with love. Being the kind of person that demonstrates the, the kind, compassionate, humble love, sacrificial love of Jesus. And then the last one, self-control or a sound mind. Even the truth coming from the mouth of a person who's, who's angry and raving, it's not going to get a fair hearing, is it? If I come in and I'm uh, yelling at you and calling you names and uh, tipping the furniture over in your house, telling you how dumb you are for having not obeyed the gospel, are you going to say, now there's the kind of guy I want to listen to boy, I wish you'd just be around all the time. I wish I could just put your, your statements on a, some type of recording and just listen to it all the time. It'd really help me out. No. No, that's ridiculous. And you know that it is. You have to be able to, to converse and reason. Even the Lord himself, he said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come, let us reason together. I want you to note this. Look at verse 13. So this is 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, as we close up. Part of what it is to utilize this sound mind, to utilize this, this self-control, it's a, a mental self-control that exhibits itself in what is done and said. Part of it is being able to follow the pattern that's given. 
The erratic person says, I do what I want when I want. You never know where I might be. The one that's of self-control, self-discipline, a sound mind is one that follows the pattern that's given. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. There are some words that are, that are healthy and life-giving. There are other words that are, harmful, that are harmful and destroy. And I don't just mean like please and thank you versus a curse word. I mean, there's some words that are healthy and give life, like those that say, repent and be baptized. You'll be forgiven, the gift, given the, forgiven your sins and given the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's healthy words that give life. You be you. You do you. Those are words that bring death. Some words bring life and are healthy and sound. Other words are harmful and destroy. The doctrine matters. It's not a matter of mere tradition to just do what we do. Worship practices are based upon divine authority. Leadership structures are based upon divine authority. Homes and marriages are based upon divine authority. We follow the pattern established by the Lord. He says you must follow the pattern of sound words, healthy, life-giving words. We're to use our minds to think like the Lord. We're to test everything, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and hold fast to that which is good. Let me, let me encourage you with this as we close. You may well find yourself in a spot right now today where the flame is going out. A month, a year, 10 years ago, Others would have emulated you and your Christian character and your Christian zeal, the way that you lived for the Lord. But today, you're barely seen because that flame is just so small. The embers are barely orange. The message from the Lord to us is the same. Fan the flame. Let's remember how powerful and wonderful and huge 